Johnson. He's one of our interns this summer. This is his second year here, and we are going to talk about some misperceptions of chemistry for you. Jager, do you want to just introduce yourself to us? Hi, I'm Jager. I'm studying chemistry at Yale University, and I'm going to be a junior. This is my second summer here, so I'm kind of continuing my chemistry research from last year. So we wanted to start out with just a little bit of general vocabulary that we'll be using for you. Pretty basic stuff in terms of chemistry. Mm -hmm. If you've ever taken a chemistry class, you probably know these. What's the difference between a chemical, an element, a chemical compound? We hear all these things all of the time, and we can sort of internalize them without actually knowing what we're saying or what we're hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so really a chemical is just, in, in the lab, it's just a purified chemical compound, and a chemical compound is just composed of elements, the, the things you see on the periodic table, things like carbon, hydrogen, helium, anything that's basically just bonded together, whether it's ionic bonds, covalent bonds, that's basically a, com- a chemical compound. So a chemical compound is the same, basically, as a chemical yes. in the lab, mm-hmm. and chemicals are maybe combinations of different elements. Yes. Okay. Thank you. No problem. What are some misunderstandings you've come across when you've heard people who don't necessarily know as much about chemistry, kind of like me, talk about chemistry? For example, chemicals and elements, you know, I thought those were the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so some misunderstandings, people think chemicals are bad or chemicals shouldn't be in your food. Chemicals shouldn't be in anything that you touch or they're they're like corrosive chemicals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I think of chemicals a lot of the time, sometimes how it's been portrayed in media, I think like if one touches my skin, my skin will burn or something. Yeah, so that's not what a chemical is. Chemicals are, they're really everything. Everything that you encounter is a chemical, whether it's like a polymer, like nylon in your shirt, or it's, you know, the the laminate on your desk. Everything's a chemical. Mm. Uh, so it's not necessarily bad. Like sometimes you'll think of, oh, like a chemical is like ammonia where we're clean. We don't want that in our food. Of course not, but there's definitely chemicals all around us. So foods are made up of chemicals. Absolutely. Isn't that weird to say or to hear? You're eating chemicals. Yeah. Because the connotation is just totally different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously chemicals are all around us. And people think acids will burn your skin off right away. That's not necessarily the case. Like, you don't want, obviously you don't want acids, like, on your skin. Mm -hmm. Like, concentrated hydrochloric acid, hydrofluoric acid, things like that. Mm -hmm. But... We definitely have acids all around us too, like vinegar. That's an acid. It's called acetic acid. It's in a low percentage. It's usually the maximum, I think, is 6%. Then nothing's going to really like burn your skin off instantly. So for something like lemon juice, how acidic is that in comparison to vinegar or an acid that could, upon contact, burn your skin? Between lemon juice and vinegar, it's hard to say off the top of my head. But stomach acid is definitely one of the stronger acids. And... So lemon juice is a little bit more basic. So on the pH scale, it's acidic, neutral, and basic. Is basic is the highest number. So obviously lemon juice isn't going to burn off your skin, but mm-hmm. neither is vinegar. And hopefully you don't get any stomach acid on your skin. But it, it's totally fine to live inside of us. Yes. We have uh, special mucous membranes in our stomach that prevents it from, you know, leaching out into our bodies. That's why it burns when you have 
acid reflux or something. Yeah, because there's less of that mucous membrane up in your esophagus. Hmm. Very cool. Chemistry is incorporated into basically every type of science. That's why medical professionals, dietitians, biologists, environmental scientists, geologists, astrophysicists have some kind of training in chemistry. As a chemistry student, how much understanding are you expected to have of other branches of science? In my major, we're only required for the basic chemistry degree, the Bachelor of Arts, we're only required to take one semester of physics. And then for a Bachelor of Science, we have to take two semesters, I believe, or the Bachelor of Science Intensive, which is just uh, more chemistry classes, one more physics class. Mm -hmm. So for chemistry specifically, you don't need to take too many other science courses. However, many students do just because they do have other interests in the scientific field. For instance, I've taken introductory biology. I'll be taking biochemistry in the fall and spring of this coming year. I'm taking quantum chemistry, which is intersection of quantum physics and chemistry. When you're talking about quantum physics, what's the difference between quantum physics and normal physics? Quantum physics is something I'd expect to hear on like Star Trek. Quantum physics deals with things that are the atom or smaller, mainly electrons. So that's why you would want to use it in chemistry. Exactly. Because you want to understand what's happening in a chemical compound, what's happening in certain materials that can only be explained at such a small scale. So we can think of it as microphysics. Essentially, yeah. Okay, so in a lab, you're able to control what you're doing, and you can pour this chemical with this chemical, Mm -hmm. and you sort of have an expectation of what you're going to see, what kind of reaction you're going to see. But when you're observing a disturbed area outside of the controls of a lab, you don't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. So are there any signals or red flags that can give you a clue as to what's present or what's happening, what chemicals are reacting together outside of a lab? I would say there's one red flag that definitely stands out, and it's definitely the, the sulfur smell. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have experienced that yeah. smell sometimes in, in nature. That's mainly from hydrogen sulfide, which is a bacterial breakdown of uh, sewage or organic waste. So if you kind of smell that in an area, you may wonder if there's been sewage leakage or if there was a massive death of some organic material. Mm. Uh, for instance, if all the algae died in an area and the bacteria starting to break it down, you'll start smelling that sulfur. But other than that, there's it's kind of hard to see those red flags until you bring some of that water, that sediment, into a lab and start testing it. Okay, so that super potent smell that we've all experienced driving on the side of a highway kind of smells like rotten eggs. Mm-hmm. It's the smell you're talking about. Yeah. What's the most basic chemical reaction you've seen? The most basic one is something all of you know. It's sodium bicarbonate mixed with acetic acid. And previously you heard me talk about acetic acid and vinegar. So sodium bicarbonate is baking soda. So this is your classic volcano uh, eruption, you know, all that foam that comes out. This is your fifth grade science fair winner. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That's the most basic. Yeah, it's just an acid-base reaction. One of the fastest reactions that we know of. So is everything a reaction? How do you classify a reaction from a non-reaction? A reaction would be a a change in structure or a change in the chemical composition of something. Okay. So when, when air hits saliva, there's nothing really happening there other than maybe the evaporation of the water in your saliva. Okay. But you breathe in air, air gets into your lungs, and there's a pulmonary blood vessel from that comes from your heart to your lungs. And so... Oxygen will bind to the hemoglobin in your 
in your blood Mm -hmm. and that will help carry oxygen to the rest of your body. And that's a chemical reaction because it's binding the oxygen to the hemoglobin that changes its structure and its chemical composition. That's a really good example. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on the opposite side of that, what's the most fascinating chemical reaction you've ever seen? That one's kind of hard because there's so many different chemical reactions that we know of really like when colors change. That's mm-hmm. one of the most fascinating things in chemistry. <laughs> it's something I actually did in my general chemistry lab this past year. I was preparing an iron-3 complex, which we were going to find out the stoichiometry of it or its chemical composition with numerical ratios, and we were going to purify by recrystallization. So we mixed a white substance, potassium oxalate, and a ferric chloride, which is an orange or a yellowish color. So when we mix those two solutions we get a green solution, and then green crystals start to form. And then if you start cooling it, larger green crystals will form. It's a form of iron-3 oxalate, but it occurs in different stoichiometric ratios. And that's how they make emeralds. Not exactly, but... (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's a very nice emerald color, and... My lab instructor actually joked and said, you can put these things in your earrings, but if it, uh, if it starts to rain, then you don't have any more emeralds. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks for the laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so within chemistry, there's several distinct branches, like we were talking about earlier. At ORCA, a lot of our research starts with aquatic environments. So the types of chemistry that we draw on are environmental, soil, aquatic chemistry, green chemistry. What's the difference between these? There's this overarching region of chemistry called green chemistry, and that's essentially the application of different types of chemistry to figure out more green solutions. And so one of these subsets is environmental chemistry, which may or may not give the applied nature to green chemistry, Okay. but it can still help in green chemistry and its solutions. So green is kind of the applied research version of chemistry. Green chemistry is research but applied. Yeah, green chemistry is applied for the purpose of finding more sustainable solutions. Okay. What would an aquatic chemist focus on that a soil chemist wouldn't necessarily have much to do with? For for starters, chemists, we really kind of branch out into multiple different fields. Mm -hmm. So a soil chemist may do aquatic chemistry. They may be just considered an environmental chemist just because they'll be doing so many different things in their field. Right. Something that aquatic chemists will do is study the amount of nutrients in the water in different waterways and soil chemists will study the sediment in that waterway and sometimes that could be the same person okay so they're looking for things like nitrogen whether in the form of nitrite nitrate ammonia and we'll be looking for things like phosphorus in the form of phosphate typically orthophosphate so you're talking about nitrite nitrate and ammonium what are the different things we see if more of one of those is present? Yeah, so there's definitely a balance that's achieved in our waterways. If one of those tips the scale, then we can we can see things start to happen that we don't normally see in, in our waterways, such as algae blooms. So if there's more, if we see more nitrogen versus phosphorus, say, we'll see more of one type of algae than a different one. And that may cause a big bloom, and then if that bloom dies, it will cause a... Dead zone? Yeah, it could be a... Hypoxia? Hypoxia, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that will cause a massive fish kill. We actually saw one recently, whether this year or last year, where a a ton of fish just washed up on the shore. Mm -hmm. 
those chemical reactions happen within the in the algae itself, whether it's cyanobacteria, which is a type of bacteria, also mm-hmm. called blue-green algae, or different protists, uh, such as green algae, or certain diatoms, such as brown algae. When we say that algae eat these nutrients, it's actually a chemical reaction that's occurring? Yeah, so same thing with us when we eat. We digest these foods, and it breaks down in our digestive system. Things like nitrogen and phosphorus are more readily used by algae. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially their food. They're using it to kind of grow and expand their colonies. Okay, so let's just talk about chemicals that occur naturally, not man-made stuff that you would create in a lab. These natural chemicals can also become pollutants under certain conditions, like kind of like we were talking about earlier. If it if it balances disrupted, that's kind of considered a pollutant, right? So so what makes a pollutant a pollutant? I actually had this conversation earlier today, and we were trying to figure out what makes a pollutant a pollutant. So we, we, we kind of stumbled on this definition where a pollutant could be an artificial substance that doesn't normally belong in nature. So that would be the man-made stuff. Yeah, that would be the man-made stuff. Or be naturally occurring substances in harmful concentrations, such as copper or iron. And a lot of invertebrates use copper similar to how we use iron in our blood. So if they have too much copper, they kind of utilize that since it's in their blood and that can cause copper toxicity in invertebrates, kind of like how it causes iron toxicity in humans and other mammals. Yeah. So that's an example of a naturally occurring element, copper, you can find it on the periodic table right in the middle of transition metals. And (laughs) (laughs) if you're looking for it, (laughs) yeah, if you're looking for it, it's right there, right, right in plain view. And in large concentrations, it can actually cause a lot of death in the invertebrate community. It's sort of a reflection, like you said, of iron in us causes the same type of thing if it's copper in an invertebrate. Exactly. So once the balance is disrupted, that's kind of when we can start to classify things as pollutants, whether they're man-made or not. Yeah, we, we kind of have to be careful when we say pollutant because that can also kind of scare the general public. Yeah. Because when, whenever we say pollutant, they're like, oh, no, we can't use that water at all. Like, that would be toxic to even humans, mm-hmm. which is, may not necessarily be the case because there's safe levels uh, designated by different health organizations about how many parts per million or parts per billion if it's especially toxic. Yeah. Uh, that we don't want drinking ourselves, but right. there's still those levels that we can tolerate. There are some notions out there that suggest that man-made chemical compounds are worse for the environment and humans and animals than naturally occurring compounds. What are your thoughts on this? My thoughts are that we can make some pretty great things in labs. For instance, uh, things in your clothing. Nylon 6-6 is a polymer that we can make in a lab. And they're not toxic on the topical level. I wouldn't recommend eating clothing. But (laughs) it's fine on our skin and it's definitely not toxic for us. And so things that we make in a lab aren't necessarily terrible for us. Now, there are things that we can make in a lab that are pretty bad for us, like bleach. But but we use that in our homes. Yeah, we pretty, do. Yeah, we, a lot of us pretty freely. Yeah. So it's, it's, I mean, it's not bad. Like if you get on your skin, you should just wash it off maybe with some mild detergent. But there are many things that we make in labs that are, that, that we use on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So, but it, you know, if we put bleach in nature, if you put oh yeah, that on your grass, it would be pretty awful. So there, yeah. there are some things that have a purpose. For instance, like fertilizer, mm-hmm. we make that in a lab. You know, we put it on our lawns; it makes things grow. And then in that environment, it can be seen as okay. But once the rain comes and washes it 
away, exactly. then that's maybe not so okay for an aquatic environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when we fertilize our lawns, we're only thinking, oh, I'm putting this fertilizer right on the grass, and that's, mm -hmm. that's only where it's going, but that's not necessarily the case. When the rain comes, the rain will take some of that fertilizer that's not already absorbed by the plants, which is a lot in that soil, mm -hmm. and it will either percolate down into our aquifer, which mm -hmm. is a source of drinking water because the springs come up that that rainwater can also go down into uh, different streams different rivers different uh, lagoons like in the indian river lagoon and that's where we achieve that unbalanced exactly. system that we were talking about earlier exactly hmm. what are some ways people can be more aware of the chemistry around them I would recommend looking on the back of your food or your drinks and looking at the ingredients list and maybe picking one and look it up, you know, pick one that you don't know and look it up and where it's like produced and how it's made. Really enlightening because there's things like food grade silicone that maybe like on your on your ladles or like your, your pasta spoons mm -hmm. and you're like, why is there silicone? Why am I going to use silicone? How is this safe? And then you can look it up and see that it's a, a low taint, non-toxic material. Because something I hear a lot of the time is, oh, all this stuff in my food that I can't pronounce. And exactly. that means it's bad. And like, no, not really. No, not necessarily. Not so yeah, you know, use different resources. Just do a quick search. Other than that, what are some common things that we can observe around our house that... Salt is sodium chloride, and baking soda is sodium bicarbonate. Mm -hmm. Washing soda is sodium carbonate. Uh, the only difference between them is a hydrogen atom. And vinegar is acetic acid. Bleach is sodium hypochlorite. Hypo? Yep, hypochlorite. Drano is... They sometimes use sodium hydroxide. There's a really good book on bacteria and just your microbiome. I contain multitudes, and it talks all about how in like the early 1900s we went through this phase of germs, and everything's a germ, and everything mm -hmm. is scary, and we should have everything should be you know completely sanitized all the time. And mm -hmm. he talks a lot about the different stories within that, and he just has really beautiful writing. So, if you want to know more about the bacteria in inside of you. Sounds like a great book. That's a good, that's a good book to read. Yeah. And but then yeah. four different sunblocks. I just wanted to talk about sunblock. Oh, sunblock. Good. Yeah. So for sunblock, there's physical and chemical. Physical sunblock is stuff that actually reflects off the sun's UV rays. It won't absorb it into your skin or it won't absorb it into the sunscreen itself. It will just reflect it right off. And so those usually contain titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. It will usually leave your skin kind of looking white. Gotcha. And then there's different types of chemical uh, sunblocks, such as oxybenzone, uh, avobenzone, octosalate, octocrylene, homosalate, and octanoxate. Mm -hmm. And these will take the UV rays from the sun and just absorb it into the sunscreen itself. Oh. So these chemicals just absorb the UV rays instead of reflecting them off. Yeah. And these, they won't leave a white sheen on your skin. So it kind of leaves your skin looking like how it normally does. They're more sweat proof and waterproof. Yeah, um, but oxybenzone has been shown to be really harmful to coral. Yeah. So even though it is waterproof, it's not necessarily like it's going to come off at some yeah. point. It'll come off in your shower, and then that mm -hmm. leads to, you know, whatever drain. And then, yeah. like you said earlier, with mm -hmm. the fertilizer, it could percolate down into an aquifer or yep. down from a stream to a river to a mm -hmm. lagoon to the ocean. So, so definitely have to be careful with those. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> well, that was a good example to I use, especially in Florida in the summertime. Exactly. Well, I think that's all for our talk today. Did you have anything else about chemistry that you wanted our listeners to know about? No, I just, uh, I love chemistry and I love sharing my knowledge with people. Who knew? <laughs> all right. Well, that's been the Orca Podcast. Thanks, Jager.